to taking a look at kind of continuing the message from last week of knowing and doing God's will as a church. And a lot of that has to do with unity and the right kind of unity. What is it that brings us together as God's people? So in Romans 15, 5 and 6, we read, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would be with us in this time of instruction and reflection upon it. Help us to be your church united against all that comes against us, both from without and from within. We're thankful for your presence in us that makes that unity possible. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Balancing the various characteristics of a healthy church culture, which we discussed last week, we talked about uh, valuing being over doing. It's not just about having a bunch of activity and doing things for the Lord. And then we talked about holiness and purity being absolutely essential and loving each other while being grounded in truth. And that all of these things experiencing the unity that comes from Christ's leadership in the church. But balancing these things uh, with the desire to be fruitful in ministry can be difficult. It can be hard. Decisions come before the church and, and that decision-making process can open the door for dissent and division. If we want to know and do God's will as a church, we have to have the faith that that division isn't inevitable. We must believe that unity and purpose and mission is possible. However, as I mentioned near the close of the message last week, since the church's foundation, individual expressions of church, our, our local fellowships together, have struggled to live out unity in Christ while pushing ahead into the future, being united in knowing what God was calling them to do. And this, this is not a new phenomenon. The church in Corinth was such a church, maybe not too unlike Desert Springs Covenant Church. In the Holy Scriptures, we find Paul's letters to the Corinthian church addressing issues of purity, unity, and decision-making. He had started that Corinthian church while on his second missionary journey. And 18 months after he left, arguments and divisions arose within the church, some church members slipping back into immoral lifestyles. And the book that we know as 1 Corinthians in our Bibles is, is actually, it kind of could be better known as 2 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians known as 3 Corinthians because there was a first letter that he wrote to them that we, we don't have. It wasn't saved for antiquity. Uh, we know this from uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 9, where Paul writes, in my previous letter, and we don't, we don't have it. So we can kind of guess at some of the things that he spoke to them about. But Paul wrote to the church in the book we now know as 1 Corinthians to address problems, to clear up confusion about right and wrong, and to remove some of the immorality from among them. 
And the problem with the Corinthian people is that, well, they were spiritually immature. They were highly impressionable, easily impressed by whoever packaged their message well. Paul wanted to ensure that their faith was built on a solid foundation, that they, they didn't get distracted from what really mattered. One of the issues he addressed was their squabbles. He said in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you, and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, when Paul tells the Corinthian church to agree with one another and allow for no divisions, and to be perfectly united in mind and thought, he isn't requiring that they all believe the same. There's a difference between having opposing viewpoints and being divisive. A group of people will not completely agree on every issue, but they can work together harmoniously if they agree on what truly matters, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Jesus prayed for our unity and, and should be the one that we're looking to for unity. Now, who knows if there will be plenty of people in heaven with which you disagreed with on some matter here on earth. Amen? Amen. Heaven's going to be full of people with whom I didn't see eye to eye with on, on any number of issues. But we will all have had Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. So in our expressions of church, local and corporate, we need to be careful about how we speak and behave and do so in a way that's going to reduce arguments and increase harmony. You know, it's not perfect because some people are going to argue with you simply because of what they have going on in their hearts and their minds. And it doesn't have anything to do with you. That's why Paul wrote to the church in Rome, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And more than that, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Romans 12, 18. So we should enter each discussion where there might be a difference of opinion, with humility and dependence on the Holy Spirit. And if you're ever in doubt that what you're about to say is going to be unnecessarily divisive, stop and pray. And ask the person with whom you are potentially at odds with if, if they would pray with you. Chances are that you will find you share a lot more in common once you take your eye off of your differences and put it on the Savior instead for help. Now, easier said than done, right? Because if you're, if you're wired like me in your natural self, it feels good to be right and for someone else to be wrong. And Especially if there is, is, is some reason to believe that you are the one who is in the right and the other person is in the wrong. Just stop and say, would you pray with me before we discuss this? 
But I think that'd be a good practice for us to get into it as a church. In Romans 15, 5 and 6, we read this just before the sermon. Paul writes me, The God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when it comes to our relationship with God and knowing his will for us, not only as individuals, but also as a church, there, there has to be that spirit of unity. And that can be a challenge to a group as diverse as in life experience as ours. The church here in Pasco has, has been in transition for the past few years. Some of you might wish that things could change more quickly. Others of you might want to return to some of the good old days. And others who are newer may not understand all of the history and are content in the present and excited about the future. So whose perception is right and who is wrong? Well, I, that's a trick question. <laughs> it's a trick question. Because I don't think I don't think it's the correct question, but that's often how we approach issues, isn't it? We we're, we're looking for who's right and who's wrong in terms of, of uh, who we are and, and where we should be headed. But the question should be, are we in God's will and are we waiting on God's timing for us as a church? And where does answering those questions, it's one thing to have the question, but where does answering those questions start for us? Well, it starts with prayer. It starts with prayer. The only way for us to know God's will as a church isn't for us to have a vote upon issues. Neither is it based on opinion or personal viewpoints. It's based upon us as a church getting serious about prayer and getting, getting our lives right with God and seeking Him together as a church. A couple weeks ago, we, we closed out our, prayer, our sermon time with prayer. And that prayer at the end of the message time, I think was really helpful learning more about each other and how we could be praying for one another. And the context, if you recall, was uh, in how we could be individually more obedient to God's call on our lives. And now the next step would be for us to pray for our obedience to God's call as a church together. With the remaining time today for the message, I'll be focusing on the fellowship of the church, what the word instructs us to be and do together. And Kennedy is going to pick up this theme and carry it forward next Sunday. Together, I hope that, that these discussions will carry over to further conversations with one another in, in small groups, over lunches and dinners together, and eventually at our church retreat. After that, it's my hope that we will have a dedicated time for group discernment with an outside facilitator that could come in and help us have a conversation with one another. Now we're coming up on not only is it the one year anniversary of uh, Phyllis's heart surgery and she's giving praise for the healing that that's brought in her life. It's also about the one year anniversary of my first visit to Pulpitville at Desert Springs Covenant Church. I know that we've got some work to do. 
as we continue to discern God's will for us at church, but I'm proud of our resilience and our growing sense of purpose and passion for ministry. So let's look at living as a true fellowship as a church for a little bit, shall we? Um, now maybe this is the wrong crowd. This is a band that was kind of popular with my generation and younger, but, but have, you, have you heard of the group U2? Yeah, okay. They had a song that came out a while back, about 16 years ago, called Sometimes You Can't Make It On Your Own. Anybody familiar with that song? I wasn't really familiar with that one until I heard it again, and it sounded kind of familiar, but it's got some great lyrics. Listen, listen to their song uh, lyrics, Sometimes You Can't Make It On Your Own. Tough, you think you've got the stuff. You're telling me and anyone you're hard enough. You don't have to put up a fight. You don't have to always be right. Let me take some of the punches for you tonight. Listen to me now. I need to let you know you don't have to go it alone. And it's you when I look in the mirror. And it's you when I don't pick up the phone. Sometimes you can't make it on your own. We fight all the time, you and I, that's all right. We're the same soul. I don't need, I don't need to hear you say that if we weren't so alike, you'd like me a whole lot more. Listen to me now. I need to let you know you don't have to go alone. There's an interesting point of the lyrics of this song that we often try to do things on our own, only to realize in the end that we need help. It's the same with the church. Many Christians function in a way that keeps others at a distance. We carry that attitude into our congregations too as we gather together where individual churches keep other congregations at a distance, maybe out of distrust or suspicion. But my question is, is this what Jesus wanted for the church? No, <laughs> I don't think so. When we look at Jesus' perspective, his intentions and expectations of the church were that was to be a, a vital, living, dynamic fellowship of believers. The Greek word that's used to demonstrate this, this concept is koinonia, for which we get the word fellowship. Now we use this word fellowship to mean all sorts of things. It'd be a, a friendly association with others or a group of of people associated together. But this was never the meaning that the Bible attached to fellowship. The biblical definition goes much deeper. Koinonia means to enter into the fullest possible partnership and fellowship with God and other believers. It describes an intimate fellowship, which is based upon the real and personal relationship given to us in Jesus Christ. So in other words, this intimate fellowship with God only comes through real, personal encounters with the living Christ as we surrender to him as our absolute Lord of our lives. In this type of love relationship, we are called to uh, pursue God and is, is that kind of relationship. So consider that definition of koinonia that gets translated fellowship when we read 1 John 1, 1 through 7. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So in verses 1 through 3, we get the indication that, that John is writing from his personal and intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. He had seen, he had heard, he had touched Jesus. John was the one who recorded Jesus' prayer in the upper room in which we read in his gospel, chapter 17. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This eternal life that Jesus prayed for and that John speaks of refers to knowing God by experience in a real and personal way. Now I want to ask you, what what benefits are mentioned if you've got that, that verse open in, or your bulletin, that first John 1 through uh, first John 1, 1 through 7. I want to ask you, what are the benefits that are mentioned in verses 4 and 7? They're there for believers because of the fellowship that they share with God and with each other. You see any benefits there? Joy. Joy. Who could use a little more joy? I could use a lot more joy. I could use a lot more joy. And their joy is made complete because the other thing that I, I picked up on there is they experiencing, they're experiencing the cleansing work of Jesus' blood. That, that that's the sacrifice that unites them. Like we talked about last week, the thing that unifies us is not political views, is not nationality, is not race. It's that we all need Jesus, every single one of us on earth. For God so loved the world, and we all need to come to Jesus for that cleansing work. All right, another question. What does verse 6, if you're looking at verse 6, what does verse 6 indicate of a person who says he or she has fellowship with God but walks in sin and darkness as a lifestyle. Life. Okay? I don't like it. I don't like that scripture is this clear. Do you like it that it's this clear? Yes. I mean, on one level, I like it that it's this clear, but I, there's not a whole lot of room for gray here. And that's the important thing. That, that idea of, of walking in sin and darkness in, indicates a a non-repentant direction away from God. Not somebody who's struggling with sin. Not somebody who's saying, this is something I, I've been dealing with this since I was a kid, and I'm still dealing with it. 
Yeah, I have a sense I'll be dealing with it next year, the year, but but it's a struggle. It's a process of refinement. But what does verse 7 tell us? If you look at verse 7, what does verse 7 tell us will be true for a person who walks in the light as God is in the light? Yeah, we'll have fellowship, that koinonia fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So you can be a sinner walking in the light and be purified from all sin. That, I am. I mean, that is, you, but if you talk to somebody who is without the Holy Spirit, that sounds like mumbo jumbo nonsense. Because what they think this means is that if we're walking in the light, that we need to be perfect, that we can never mess up. But the idea is that we're walking in the light and that the light exposes to greater and greater degrees as we mature in our faith, things that the Lord is still dealing with in us. So if we're going to have right fellowship with one another, then we, we must be right with God. There's an incredible thing that happens as we let God have his way in our lives. And that is where we once held resentments and apprehensions against one, one another. We now have the love of Jesus Christ and are more accommodating and accepting of others. We can handle even accusations and slights from others in a level-headed way because we're walking and will be walking in integrity with one another under Christ's headship. So our fellowship with believers in our congregation is an indication of the health of our relationship with God. You see, our fellowship as believers is with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. This fellowship, as I have said, is an intimate partnership. And 1 John states clearly, we cannot cannot be in true fellowship with God and be out of fellowship with our fellow Christian brother and sister. Real quickly, I want to hit a couple points from, from 1 John. These aren't in your bulletin, but you might want to jot some notes. 1 John 2, 9 through 11 says, If anyone claims, I am living in the light, but hates a fellow believer, that person is still living in darkness. Anyone who loves a fellow believer is living in the light and does not cause others to stumble. But anyone who hates a fellow believer is still living and walking in darkness. Such a person does not know the way to go, having been blinded by the darkness. And 1 John 3.10 is even more pointed. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Ouch. Again, not a whole lot of room for gray. Now, if we were if we were not in experiencing God, if we were following the, uh, the liturgy, today would have brought us to a passage in Mark where we have the declaration from Peter. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Right? Or in Caesarea Philippi, and, and Jesus asks his disciples who people say, that I am, and you know, some say John, some say a prophet, some say the Messiah, and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter has a wonderful confirmation that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then like 
30 seconds later, do you recall that story, what, what Jesus says to you? He says, get behind me, Satan, because you have not in mind the things of God, but the things of man. What was it? It was, it was Peter saying, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, you can't suffer. I don't want to hear about you going to the cross. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And what is it that, that, that designated Peter's word as a word from Satan? It was that he had in mind the things of man, not the things of God. So, when we read scriptures like this, where it's like, child of God, child of the devil, we, we think, we kind of blow it out as like these huge extremes. But if somebody like Peter, whom God said, on this rock I'm going to build my church, also got called out in a moment for saying and suggesting something that was not in line with God, and said, get behind me, Satan, then I don't think I'm ever at a time when I could say safely, oh, well, I could never fall into that error. I could, I could never be in that place. So there's a humility that comes from, I hope that comes from reading these words, as pointed as they are. 1 John 3, 14 and 1 John 4, 7 and 8 tell us that our love for one another is a testimony to our salvation and our new birth in Christ. Where we read, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Everyone who loves is, or whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And one more from 1 John. 1 John 3. 16 and 17 and 1 John 4, 11 and 12, they make clear that this love is sacrificial. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear friends, since God has so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So what is this love that is made complete in us? What does this love look like? We'll finish with this. First Corinthians tells us, 13 tells us what love is and what love isn't. Just kind of let these words bathe over you and, and see how you're doing. It is patient, kind, Rejoicing in the truth, protecting, trusting, hoping, persevering. It never fails. It isn't envious, boastful, proud, rude, self-seeking, easily angered, a record keeper of wrongs, rejoicing in other people's misfortunes. So which description best fits our fellowship, our quenya together? Let us pray. God, we thank you for this difficult topic of being church. Your church has struggled from the beginning of what it means to remain under your headship, to take direction from you, to deal with the divisions and the disagreements that come our way, the different ways in which we 
read scripture perhaps or envision our future together. Lord, help us to have the, the humility and the grace and the love and acceptance to walk alongside each other as we keep in step with your spirit. As we move closer and closer to your will for us individually and corporately. We ask all these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Mm -hmm.